You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Amen. So as we mentioned the last couple weeks, we have divided the sermon series of the Gospel of John into four mini-sermons, I'm sorry, mini-series, if you will. We mentioned this last week, and it's kind of denoted by the four different circles you see up here on our slide, because we're that creative, okay? Uh, The first one is in the beginning. In the beginning, this is how John had been painting the big picture from the beginning, like the beginning, the beginning of the Messiah coming. Okay, we're right now currently in signs of a Savior. This is how Christ has shown His deity through His signs and efforts to restore people in their health and restore them to the community of God. Next week, we're actually jumping into teachings of a good shepherd. This is where Jesus' teachings on faith, His farewell discourse, the high priestly prayer. And we're actually going to take a break during this sermon series uh, for Advent, which is incredibly crazy to think about that we're right now closer to Advent than we are the beginning of summer. We're closer now to Advent. Blew my mind when I thought about this morning, okay? That's weird to think about. Uh, But we're going to start that next week, and then we'll wrap up in the spring through the Gospel of John looking at a new life. We'll look at the passion account of Christ his reappearance after he had been risen, and we'll finish the book. So really excited. I have the privilege and honor today of finishing what we consider signs of a Savior. We're going to wrap up this little mini-series and next week dive into teachings of a good shepherd. We're considering him coming into Jerusalem, riding on the donkey, fulfilling this prophecy as really his final sign of his public ministry before the Passion account that we read of next. So, all of Old Testament is, all the Old Testament is directly and indirectly painting the picture of the person and work of Jesus. That's what our aim is to do every time we open the scriptures, is to look and see how is this pointing to Jesus, all right? So, with that being said, shifting gears, all right, Benton? We have any hockey fans in the house? All right. We got, we got some winners in here. All right. All right, so I'm a homer. I love Cardinals baseball. I love St. Louis Blues hockey. But if you know anything about Blues hockey, it's been a grim story so far. Right? Can I get some amens or no? You know, oh my's. You know what I mean? In this story of St. Louis Blues, they have appeared in the Stanley Cup. The Stanley Cup is the championship uh, of hockey, right? They've appeared four times, okay? Now, the St. Louis Blues have been in existence for 52 years, okay? So that's not bad statistics there, right? 50 years, four times. That's, you know, a little bit more than a decade of an appearance. No, 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 no. Let me clear this up for you. 1968, 1969, and 1970, three years, back to back to back, the St. Louis Blues made it to the Stanley Cup final. And all three times, they lost. Okay? It's a little bit top-heavy on their involvement in the Stanley Cup, right? So, come 2019, we're back in, and this is our final time that we won the Stanley Cup. It's incredible. 50, nearly 50 years of waiting for the people, the Blues fans in the area, to come out in all the droves 
and celebrate what this team has accomplished, right? So I have some pretty cool pictures to show you. This is, uh, this is the St. Louis Arch, the grounds of the Arch, and you can see all these little dots and blips kind of filling in the street, but also down by the Arch grounds. It's estimated over 70,000 people joined the celebration there at the Arch Ground. And so as you kind of keep zooming in on this picture, you can see all those people. There's a parade, and then there was this rally where people just probably drank a lot of adult beverages and celebrated by eating good food and screamed and cried, and they were so happy that their St. Louis Blues have finally, finally won the Stanley Cup. You keep going Estimated from the city of St. Louis, nearly 400,000 people filled downtown St. Louis for the parade. Okay? There's just a little bitty picture there. Maybe some of you were in this. Keep going. There was a, just incredible pomp and circumstance, and insane loud noise. I mean, this is the parade of parades for St. Louis Blues fans. Waiting 50 years for this, and now it's here. It's happened. Go ahead. Click the next one. Look at that. Oh, my boy, Patty Maroon here, you know, doing it up. Great picture. We came, came to who we were because of this goalie next, Jordan Biddington. It's incredible. Beautiful celebration for the fans, right? And little did you know that we actually, Mercy's Door has a uh, boots on the ground reporting team um, in Cam and Tim Casey. They were there. All these pictures were, pro- I'm just kidding. They didn't provide any of these pictures. They, Google, Google provided all the pictures. But what they did send me when, in asking for this, I knew they had gone to the parade. They actually got some video. So if you weren't there, if you didn't see it on the news, he sent me some video. But all I just want you to do is just listen. Just listen. Go ahead. Yeah, so they, they, he lost his job for the, uh, to be the Mercy's Door spokesman because he can't figure out <laughs> how to put the video vertically. Uh, God bless him, you know. Um, but you, you hear the shouts. It's not hard. You look at 14 seconds or five seconds of that, and you know what you're supposed to yell in celebration, right? Let's go, Blues! Let's go! Right? It's an incredible experience that everyone's rallying around 50, nearly 50 years of awaiting for this to happen. There's been a lot of heartbreak, a lot of tears, and it finally came true. The Blues won the Stanley Cup. This incredible experience in no way compares to the length of time that the Jews had to wait for the entrance of their Messiah to come into Jerusalem. In no way did it even, this blip of thousands of people in 50 years, oh, 50 years, that's about how long we wandered in the desert, right? This incredible, as Jesus enters the city with great fanfare, fit for a king, he's greeted with people that have expectations, right? That this is the king, this is the coming king that's going to set us all free once again. He's going to bring in a new rule and a new kingdom to pass. They had heard what he had done with Lazarus. And the crowd, some of them were believers, true followers, but some just wanted to see 
the spectacle of it all. Some wanted to see and meet this miracle worker, but instead they were meeting their Savior, King. So the context as we dive into this story, the importance of this in Jesus' ministry is evident in the fact that all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, show, share the triumphal entry account. That is significant. Why is it significant? We're going to take a look at it. This scene, as we read uh, in John chapter 11, it moves from a quiet dinner with close friends to a scene of incredible fanfare, incredible noises. They weren't yelling, let's go blues. They were yelling, Hosanna, 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 right? So we will look at the importance of that as well. This was the only public demonstration that involved Jesus that he allowed during his earthly ministry. So what does that mean? We're going to take a look at it today. This morning, my objective is I want to look at Jesus's entry back into Jerusalem and the aftermath and pull out what it means for us today as we walk faithfully with our Lord. Let's jump in. Verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So verse 12, we read, The large crowds and the feast. What does this mean, large crowds? These were followers from Galilee who had seen and heard of this man Jesus. He, he amassed a large following just from the, what we read last week in the raising up of Lazarus. He had hordes following him now because this man, they saw Lazarus. They knew he was dead, dead. He was gone. But this man who has power over life and death brought him back. So these are the people that are following him. And why were they following him other than that? Well, it's because there was a feast. What's the feast? We'll look at that. The feast, this is the Passover feast. And as you can remember, this is the feast that celebrates the Hebrew liberation from slavery in Egypt. You know the story of the destroyer angel passing over the people of Israel if and only if they had painted the lentils, the mantle of their door with the blood of another. Right, I love how in Jesus' ministry, and the, I just love the timing of all of this. He is entering into Jerusalem on this festival, on this feast, right? the Passover feast, that even Jews today celebrate the Passover feast as one of the most celebrated uh, holidays and traditions in Hebrew culture. But he's celebrating as he's entering in. I just can't, I can't help but love the timing and, and really and paint the picture for you. This is when all of the lambs were being sacrificed. All of the lambs were being slaughtered in celebration and remembrance of what God had done to deliver them from the Egyptians. And it's almost as if Jesus entering in to Jerusalem is like, put me in line. For that put me in line for that slaughter because I'm going to cover these people as well we read in 1 Corinthians 5 7 it says for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed 
in 1 Peter 1.19, but the precious blood of Christ that the lamb without blemish, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It was no coincidence that our Savior came during Passover as he entered in. Verse 13, we read, So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So the two words that kind of stuck out to me were palm branches and Hosanna. What do we know about palm branches? Well, we know now that this denotes Palm Sunday. It's where we get the celebration of Palm Sunday, and this is really the inauguration of the Passion Week. We, uh, from timelines, we can understand that that is the case. If we went to Jerusalem now, we would understand that why this is a dry, desert, arid climate, and so we know that uh, vegetation isn't all that much. It's not a rainforest, guys. You know, it's a, it's a desert. So anything green is substantial. So these palms are everywhere, even to the fact that they're on money. They're on coins back in this time. And so this palm was a national symbol of hope and victory that the Messiah was arriving. It was often waved and is, is a time of victory and peace, just like we saw people waving St. Louis blues uh, towels and memorabilia and things like that. These palms were interesting. And, and I love, I, the thing I love about Jewish culture is their, their value of symbols. Their value of symbolism and how everything connects and points to something else. Everything that they do, and I, I love this. And so this we see of palms all throughout Scripture. We, we see in Revelation 7, uh, the account of John that he saw a multitude and what they were what were they waving palm branches okay but in the old testament we see from leviticus 23:40 it says this and you shall take on the first day the fruit of the splendid trees branches of palm trees and boughs of levy trees and willows to the brook and you shall rejoice before the lord your god 7 days okay so what does that mean all right, it's in the Old Testament. Well, this, in Leviticus 23, these were instructions concerning the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, okay? Like I mentioned before, Jewish tradition, very, very important. Pictures and symbols matter. They mean something. So, this instruction here was to instruct, to guide the people on what to do as they celebrate. What are they celebrating? They're celebrating the productivity of the land. They're celebrating harvest. Like I said, this is a dry, desert, arid climate. So to have harvest is a big deal. So they're thanking their God for what he has provided for them. And how they did so, branches of palm trees and boughs of levy trees. As I was doing some research and why the significance, other than what I've mentioned, of palm trees, it said this, as they pray for rain to come, this rain is totally out of their control. But when God provides the rain, it meets their needs. As they shake palm branches, it is said that the shaking and the rustling of the leaves reminds the Jewish people that God had provided rain. That's so cool. That is so cool. Rain had to come for sustenance to be provided. Just like someone, a Messiah had to come for ultimate sustenance to be provided. Now compare this entry, all this fanfare and pomp and circumstance to a Roman triumph 
this wasn't an uncommon experience of people bringing masses and hordes of people into a city. It was a very common practice and very common by the Romans. And so this was called a Roman triumph. And so what it was, the victor of a foreign battle, if, as they returned to the city, they had to slay at least 5,000 people in battle and they were crowned with this uh, Roman triumph. The victor was permitted to display the spoils of war, his trophies that he had won, and enemy leaders that he had conquered, to the point that as the Romans brought these people in, bound and uh, in whatever you could imagine the gruesome sight, this would end up usually leaving, uh, ending in the arena or the Colosseum, and then these people, these spoils of war, would be thrown in to do battle against various beasts, lions, bears, tigers, that kind of thing. You kind of get the dichotomy here of this gruesome scene of pride. Look what I have done. Look what I have conquered to the, the one man who could conquer everything in an instant, coming in peace, riding on a donkey. What are they yelling? Hoshiana. Hoshiana. It's the Hebrew where we get our transliteration. Hosanna. Hosanna. What does it mean? The literal translation of Hoshiana means save us save us now we need you save us god we love to sing it and put a beautiful melody to it but the little translation is a call to urgency god save us save us save us now this was a prayer from psalm 118 it says save us we pray O lord the crowds added the identification of Jesus as the Messiah, what we see in verse 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So John, in this account, we, we understand that this is, John's thing was really making, the, making he had a special interest in Jesus' royalty. And so he makes mention that the crowds add this identification marker of Jesus. So look at verse 14. Why a donkey? Jesus found a young donkey, sat on it just as it is written. Why a donkey? The other gospels give more detail as to how Jesus uh, you know, sequestered this donkey. But why a donkey? Jesus was deliberate in how he presented himself. Very, very purposeful. Entry into a city, again, this wasn't an uncommon feature, an uncommon thing. People would enter cities. Other nations, other peoples, as they entered a city, they, had, they would enter in one of two ways. If they entered on a beast of burden, like a donkey, that was a symbol of peace. It meant they are coming for reconciliation, coming in hopes of bringing things together. Whereas when people, you wouldn't even have to talk to leadership, people come on a beast of dominance, like a horse, it meant something else. It meant you were coming for war. It meant you were coming to conquer. So, you get the picture here. Entry into a city even mattered. One commentator says, this deliberate choice from Jesus must have raised the heat of the crowd by many degrees. You see, when he comes in on a donkey, it's still symbolic of him opening his hands up to receive sinners to receive people into following him. We know when he returns, he's not going to be on a donkey. And he'll be coming to conquer his world. We read on. 
what is the prophecy? Donkey and what is this quote? This is directly from Zechariah, the prophet, chapter 9, verse 9. And it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So, this is the sign from our Savior, fulfillment of this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. Now, this is incredible, okay? If you're into histor- hist- I said history, if you're into history, let's we call it that too, uh, if you're into history or history, um, Listen to this. This is incredible. So this obviously got my, the wheels turning on, like, how many prophecies did Jesus fulfill, right? Uh, this is incredible. So conservatively, historians, commentators, people who know Christ, people who follow Christ, people who don't follow Christ, would agree that the person of Jesus Christ is tied to fulfilling an estimated 324 prophecies, Years, decades, century before he was there, this man, summed up in this man, 324 prophecies. Okay, now, let me put that in context for you. A uh, mathematician named, by the name of Peter Stoner, he counted the probability of one person fulfilling even a small number of these prophecies. He concluded that this, a single man, all things being equal, fulfilling just 48 not 324, 48. If one man spanning history, spanning uh, geography, if one man fulfilled 48 of these prophecies, that would be the equivalent of the likelihood of one out of 10 to the 157th power. 48. We're talking about 324. If, if one man spanning history, could fulfill 48 of these prophecies, that would be the equivalent, the likelihood of 1 to times 10 to the 157. 1, 10, 157 zeros. I like those odds. Right? That's incredible. Now, using the science of probability to put it in our language, he said, all right, 48 is way too much. 157 zeros, way too much. Let's just say 8. If one man spanning history could um, fulfill eight prophecies, this is the analogy that Peter Stoner uses. He says, if eight prophecies were true, then we could say, if we would take 10 to the 17th power, okay, 10, 17 zeros of silver dollars, okay, knowing and all things being equal, silver dollars, the dimensions of a silver dollar, if you took that many silver dollars and laid them on their face, all things being equal in the state of Texas, okay, understanding the geography and the boundary line of Texas, if you put that many silver dollars in the state of Texas, it would be create a pile that was two feet high of silver dollars. That's a lot of silver dollars, okay? Then if in some way we were able to put them in like a KitchenAid mixer and stir it all up, Okay, stir up all the things, and then at some point we put on a silver dollar, we painted it, and we, we, color, we colored it a different color, threw it in the pile, stirred it all up, and then I took one man, and I put a blindfold on him, and I said, okay, go pick one of those coins, one of those silver dollars. The likelihood that that one blindfolded man would pick up the painted silver dollar 
is the same likelihood that just eight prophecies would be fulfilled and summed up in one man. That's incredible. Okay? That is incredible. This is what he says. Peter Stoner. The same chance that the prophets who have had would have had of writing just eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their day into present time, provided they wrote of their own wisdom, this means that the fulfillment of just eight prophecies alone proves that God inspired the writing of those prophecies to a definiteness which lacks only one chance in 10 to the 17th power. That is mind-blowing. And it happened. The blindfolded man went into the pile in Texas and picked out the one with the mark on it. That's nuts. Y'all with me? Does that freak you out? That's insane. Eight. Just eight. He, 324 prophecies that he fulfilled. Here are 15. I have this. If you want it, I can email it to you. I can copy and paste it, whatever you, you need. Here are 15. The Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah is to be preceded by a messenger. The Messiah is to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. The Messiah is to be betrayed by a friend. The Messiah is to be sold for 30 pieces of silver. The money in which the Messiah is sold is to be thrown to the potter in God's house. The Messiah is to be born of a virgin. The Messiah is to be hated without cause. The Messiah is to be sent before his, or sorry, silent before his accusers. The Messiah is to be executed by crucifixion, having his hands and feet pierced. The Messiah is to be given vinegar to quench his thirst. The Messiah is to be executed without having a bone broken. The Messiah is to be buried with the rich when dead. The Messiah is to be executed by crucifixion. And the 15th one is the Messiah is to be raised from the dead. 15. 324 of these that Jesus has fulfilled. This is our faith, church. Not only is he living and active now, today, moving in your life and in mine, he has done this. We ought remember what he has done and what he has fulfilled. Let's look at the aftermath. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to see him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. All right, verse 16, probably similar to us. We see a lack of understanding. His disciples did not understand. I got to thinking, these disciples, the most intimate people that walked the face of the planet with Jesus, didn't get it. They missed it. The Jews that had seen these signs of the Savior missed it. What makes us think that we wouldn't? 
Maybe that's something that speaks to me. I, I kind of often view this as like, how could you guys not see all these prophecies that were being unfolded and this man was doing all of them, fulfilling all of them? Well, I would have been just in the same camp. I would have missed it, and you would have missed it too. We now have the luxury of living on this side of the cross, living on this side of the Spirit, the Helper coming. They, they didn't understand the true nature of his Messiahship, the necessity of his death, or the plan for his kingdom. I wrote this down, and it was just like a dagger to my heart. They, they believe God's victory should be on their terms and meet their expectations. Church, we believe often that God's victory should be on our terms and meet our expectations, right? Isn't it interesting how after the fact, all these made sense? We read in in verse 16, it, it says that these things had been written about him, that they had been done after he had been glorified, after they saw him again, and he was ascended, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, that these things start to click. Isn't that how it happens in your life too? After the fact, you don't know what's happening in your life, but then you see, okay, God, you're doing something. You have a plan. The Last Supper communion makes sense. All those I am statements that Jesus made throughout his ministry make sense now because they're all tied up in what he has done verse 17 and 18 we read about Lazarus the crowd that had been with them when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness verse 18 the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done these signs I love the story of Lazarus it's an incredible story but from this these two verses we have some clear applications we can draw in to our lives today this story of death to life that all these people were following a lot of the people had been with jesus before the G- the lazarus story but then once lazarus dead dead gone stinky dead okay when jesus raises him back to life he amasses a brand new following of people the story of this death to life is still being used to impact others to follow Christ. Church, hear me. Your story from death to life can still be used to impact people for Christ. Your story of how you were dead in your sin, you lived by the ways of this earth, and now because of Jesus and only because of Jesus, you have life. And that doesn't make sense to a dying and dead world. Your testimony matters. The raising of Lazarus was a miracle that very many people regarded as a sign that Jesus was the Messiah. This miracle helped many people put their faith in Jesus. Friends, the raising of you could be the miracle that people see and people put their faith in Jesus. You were dead and now you're alive. Verse 19, some more clear applications we can draw from in our lives. Verse 19 it says, Yet many others still 
did not believe. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees looked on unbelief. They're frustrated by Jesus' popularity and their inability to do anything about it right now. Right? Now listen to this. Faith in Christ always and has always caused a radical going after him. We see it here. The Pharisees even proclaim, look, the whole world is going after him. That is not significant to this story. Anytime people encounter the living Jesus, they go after him. It's what we were made for. It's what we were made to do. This got me thinking, though, all these people, yeah, it was a holiday, right? The Passover festival. But got me thinking, all these people flooding to Jerusalem, like, who's taking care of the sheeps? Who's taking care of the chickens? Who's watching their house? Who's, all of the little things, the minutia of life, like, who's, who's doing it? And they're like, who cares? Jesus is here. That same radical following of Christ is the same today. When it doesn't make sense in your life to pick up and move so that you can be closer to a community of faith, or it doesn't make sense when you foster and adopt that kid, or whenever you decide, I'm going to turn down a high-paying job so that I can minister to these people, It doesn't make sense to the world. But it's always the case when people encounter Jesus. They go after him. They go after him. It is reasonable for us also, church, in the relativistic world that we live in, to be consumed and confident. I was dead. Now I'm alive. You can be so certain of that and still have skeptics. And that's okay. Be encouraged. Be encouraged that you're, you're in good company. These are just a few things that I've heard in my life. I'm glad, Brett, that you found God. Yeah, this is just a, this is a passing phase. Or, yeah, you know, Brett, that's great, but how can you really believe in something that happened that long ago? I'm like, that long ago, I met with him this morning. He's here right now. Enter in. Knock. Seek him. Come with me. I'll take you. It didn't just happen. Yeah, he fulfilled these prophecies of old. But he's alive and active, church. Don't be discouraged when there are people who still don't believe even after the miracle of your salvation. Don't be discouraged. I love this quote from Keller. He says this, Those people and forces that appear to rule the world are all under his lordship. And one day, they will know it. God still reigns, and we can take refuge in him from all our fears. So to be intimidated by the world is as spiritually fatal as being overly attracted to it fear not church your king has come and is coming 
as I wrap up today, you know, Jesus is a singular name. You hear the name Jesus, it's like Bono, you know, Adele, what am I? <laughs> Lincoln, <laughs> you know. Uh, cut that, strike that from the audio. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, this scene causes is of infinite more significance than a Stanley Cup trophy. The scene of him entering, coming back to Jerusalem, not only fulfills prophecy, but it's a picture. We see him entering the end game. I'm going to read a, a quote from this book. It's called Faithful Leaders. It's a really good book, but I love this. I love this picture that he paints of Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me, it says, Jesus did not hang on what was rightfully his. He did not get hung up about his rights. His incarnation was an act of self-sacrifice, exceeding only in the history of humanity by his crucifixion. He did not use his divinity as a cause to strut around the stage of human history. No, he used his humanity in order to die a criminal's death by his own choice. Here is Jesus' way of leadership. He chose humanity. He chose the cross. He chose to pay our ransom. He chose our interests above his own. He was so passionate so passionate was he for the welfare of others and the glory of God. This is our Savior. This picture of fanfare and pomp and circumstance of him entering and all the people shaking and waving these branches and yelling Hosanna and Hosanna is a clear, clear as day picture to me of him advancing his kingdom forward. And church... He is advancing his kingdom forward today and tomorrow and the next and the next and the next. His kingdom is coming. As we conclude, we study this section of John, we can celebrate his coming. And one day we get to marvel perfectly as we see in the prophecy of John and Revelation, the end time, we're going to have palm branches again. And we get to celebrate that our Savior, our conquering King, is going to come. Would you pray with me as we close?